I've always wondered how anyone can do what I do without having a judge personality, without always keeping a grasp of what's happened in the past to be able to literally use that on a day-to-day basis, even to the point where from a literal basis on my computer, I have emails that I wrote 10 years ago that I routinely go back to to pull verbiage. I have documents that I wrote 15 years ago that I go back to because I can remember what I wrote on a report for a certain project and I want to use it again. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ventura, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive Who keeps us from falling off the proverbial cliff? While some are naturally inclined to dream new ideas, or others can't help but build new relationships, there is a segment of society whose entire focus and role are to protect us from poorly constructed shortcuts. This typically skeptical personality recognizes that nothing around us is a coincidence. Things are either poorly designed or built to exacting standards. Often being shamed for not seeing the world as glass half full, this transactional personality plays the vital role in offering the evidence required to lay claim to facts. Carl Strand founded his consultancy by making the most of his skepticism and guarding the standards for commercial architectural exteriors. Carl and his wife Randy have been students with Influence Ecology since June of 2015. They live in Dallas, Texas. In this episode's Guru Talk, we'll hear co-founder Kirkland Tibbles talk about the asset and liability of the judge personality and how each personality can work together. Here's the interview. To introduce yourself, you say who you are and where you live and what you do. Carl Strand. I live in Dallas, Texas. I'm a specialty architectural consultant. Over the years, I've worked my way into this niche of consulting where I evaluate the exterior walls of commercial buildings. And I think I've seen pictures of you from time to time hanging off the sides of some rather tall buildings. Is that right? You spend a lot of time on the outsides of buildings hanging off of scaffolds and... I do. Uh, rappelling down the sides of buildings? I do. I rappel on buildings on ropes up to about 20 stories. And then above that, we use various kinds of scaffolding. I've been up, I think 67 stories is the highest I've been on the outside of a building. It's a lot of fun once you get out there. You don't want to become too comfortable with it at any given point. You always want to be uh, a little bit scared of it. But uh, it's it's a lot of fun once you get out there. All right. As I understand it, what you do is you provide consulting to these building owners or perhaps architects and the like to make sure that what? 
Well, we help architects to design the outside walls of buildings so that all the parts and pieces go together correctly. And then we also evaluate existing buildings either for corporations that currently own a building. Maybe it has problems, it leaks water, and we need to figure out how to make it not leak. Or maybe they're purchasing a, a skyscraper or a commercial building and they need to know how much money they're going to spend on the building on the outside walls over the next 10 years or so is a, is a normal term. And so they hire us as a specialty consultant to evaluate the outside walls. Very good. So you've been studying with Influence Ecology for how long now? About three years. All right. And I don't know why you began to study, but obviously something piqued your interest or you saw an opportunity here. Can you just tell me a little bit about why you decided to study with us? My wife, Randy, had actually begun studying with Influence Ecology. She was referred by a friend of hers, and I actually thought she was in some sort of a cult or something because she was doing this study that seemed like it made no sense to me. She tried to describe it to me, and it just I really wasn't getting it. And at a certain point, <laughs> she convinced me that I should at least talk with you guys and see if it was something that could help me out. And, and it didn't take long once I heard what it was actually all about before I decided that it really could help me. That's great. And now you've been to many conferences, I think, what, two, three, four conferences or something like that, the both of you? Five at this point, yes. We enjoy it. Absolutely. Well, we enjoy you too. I adore the, the both of you. Randy's a treat. I mean, she's just, she's such a rare find as well. It's always great to see her and you together at the, at the events uh, and the like. We have some opportunities here because as we distinguish it here at Influence College, we study personality. So we just study, talk about the inventor, performer, producer, and judge personality. And we've had many podcasts where we've spoken to inventors about their own, the asset and the liability of, of their personality or different traits about that. We've uh, occasionally had some performers and producers, and we rarely get to experience the benefits of talking to a judge personality. And you did such a great job of talking a little bit about your own litmus tests, which I just, I love this for so many reasons. I want to address that. But first, would you just say in your own words, what's a judge personality? What does that mean? Very, very skeptical, very much using the past experience, having a chronology in your mind of all the things you've done in your life, having an encyclopedia in your mind of experiences that you use to judge what's happening now and predict what's going to happen in the future. I feel like that's what makes me good at my job in terms of being a consultant because yeah. One of the main things that we do is someone's buying a building and they want to know how much money they're going to have to spend over the next 10 years. So I dig back in the past with similar buildings that I've looked at, similar systems. I know what works. I know what doesn't work. I know how it fails, when it's going to fail, and what needs to be done to fix it. And I can use that to then develop I say I polish my crystal ball to be able to tell them when things are going to have to be done and how much money it's going to cost to do them. Hmm. So I would summarize it as being very skeptical. Our first answer to anything is no. <laughs> if you come and ask me if I should do something, I'll say no. And then if you push the issue, I expect some evidence to show me why what you're saying is going to work it is actually a possibility. All right. So now... Let's give a little freedom to our judges. You know, we have from time to time people who start our programs 
or they're attending our live events and they come to understand that they're not alone, (laughs) that there's some extraordinary value in skepticism. And that's not the way that we were taught, generally speaking. There's a lot of people that would say, you know, come on, Carl, be more positive. Quit being so glass half empty. Why don't you be all that kind of stuff, right? Since we don't teach that some personalities are better than others or there's good ones or bad ones or whatnot, what are some of the things that you've learned from us about your own personality and how it's an asset? Well, the first thing to do was to actually come to grips with the personality that I've always realized that I was skeptical. I've been told in meetings before that I'm just, I'm negative. And like you say, why can't you be positive about something? Uh, you know, like you say about the glass half empty, I'm the guy who wonders if they cleaned the glass out before they put anything in it. <laughs> and so I've had to come to grips with the fact that Having a judge personality is not a bad thing. To me, other people may view it differently, and yet to me, it's it's an asset for what I do. The other thing is I've realized that I have to change the narratives of how I actually approach arguments or meetings, interactions with people who have different personalities because I've, I've come to the realization that over the years there are some some specific topics that I've not been able to address in a, I guess you would say, a persuasive manner with people who have other personalities because my delivery is all wrong. The narrative that I'm using to try to convince them of my line of thinking is wrong. And it's not wrong. It's not the right delivery to be convincing to them, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So you need to perhaps temper the way it might normally land in someone's ears and perhaps present it in a way where it's perhaps not perceived in a negative way, but perhaps in some other way. Yes. And you have any examples of the way that you do that? Do you find that you just simply have to smile when you're talking or do you find what are some of the ways that you temper that perception of negativity? Well, to smile or even to form a joke around it, to bring some humor to a situation and then rephrase what I'm trying to say in a way that can put a positive spin on it and yet get the same point across. Great. I personally work with a lot of judges. Judges are some of my favorite people. You know, my spouse is a judge. All of the executives of this company are married to judges. We love our judges. And one of the opportunities that we have cured influence ecology is to be able to study that personality and the misunderstandings about that personality. Every personality and the way that we teach it has the the assets and liabilities of that personality. And every one of those personalities has, you could say, the trials and tribulations of growing up and having everybody say, hey, stop being so negative, or perhaps to our performers, hey, why don't you stop being so flaky? Why don't you get more disciplined? Or to the inventors, hey, stop being such an ego-driven whatever. We all have that kind of thing. And the judge is the kind of personality I think is an important one to have in any transaction because they are the standard bearer. They are the one that holds the standards, offers the constraints. They're the one that says, hey, watch out, this is about to go off a cliff. They're that kind of personality. And I love that you're doing what you do as a consultant because you're in one of those positions where you've made the most of something that's very natural to you. 
Anything you want to say to comment about all that? I've always wondered how anyone can do what I do without having a judge personality, Mm. without always keeping a grasp of what's happened in the past to be able to literally use that on a day-to-day basis going forward, even even to the point where from a literal basis on my computer, I have emails that I wrote 10 years ago that I routinely go back to to pull verbiage. I have documents that I wrote 15 years ago that I go back to because I can remember what I wrote on a report for a certain project and I want to use it again. And I know people who delete everything right after they did it. And it baffles my mind as how you could do what I do without doing it the way that I do it. Yeah, I'm one of those people. I delete everything in my calendar once it's finished. I delete everything in my email once I've attended to it or read it. It's all gone. There's no past. There's no past. I can't. I cannot even wrap my mind around that. <laughs> I know. I know. It is. It's such a different orientation. Well, we could talk lots about that, but I think one of the things that I do want to address is this notion of a standard bearer. And I want to address it because as we teach it, every one of the personalities has a kind of currency that they wield something that they transact with. So for example, our performers, they are skilled at relationship. And so if I want to get something done, for example, as an inventor, I I go get my performers to go rally the troops. They got the networks and the, the people and all of that. Now with my judges, they offer evidence and they offer standards and they offer history You said you keep everything, emails and whatnot, maybe 10 years old. Beautiful thing is if I need to remember something, I just go to our CFO, Daryl Anderley, who's also a judge. And Daryl's got all that stuff. He's got every email. He's got the stuff in his calendar. Hey, Daryl, when did we have that meeting on the blah, blah, blah? Oh, and he goes and he finds it, right? So I've extended my brain by using my judges for all that kind of stuff when I need to. It's rare, but it it does happen. I'll admit, it does happen. You wrote in your notes something about your shortcuts. And you wrote down, you said, we recognize that we use very general rules as shortcuts to make decisions. We would agree. There's all kinds of shortcuts we talk about at Influence Ecology, certain principles that guide our behavior and shortcuts we take as a species. And you say expensive is better than cheap. These are examples. Expenses are better than cheap. Handmade is better than machine. Something made slower is better than something made quickly, etc. And you're fascinated with the idea of boiling us down to very specific shortcuts or litmus tests. I love that you wrote that because these are a kind of standards, you know, set of standards that you're playing with. Tell me a little bit about this and your fascination with the topic. It all started when I was reading a book. Our friend Corey Shepard wrote a book called Cape Not Required. It's the idea is you don't have to be a superhero to do great things. And I was reading Corey's book, and in there he talks about a Renaissance-era painter who had a deliberate practice that he did of drawing circles. And he drew circles over and over again. Even though he could already draw them perfectly, he continued to do that as a deliberate practice. Not that he drew circles in his art, but he realized that the the act of drawing a perfect circle gave him the hand coordination to do the art that he was famous for. The question that was posed in the, the line of thinking was, 
okay, that's what this artist did. Now, for you, in your expertise, what are the circles that you need to be drawing? What is the thing that you need to be doing as a deliberate practice to get better and better and better at your line of expertise? And so that caused me to think about the things that I need to be doing. And sort of that line of thought led me down this path to where I realized that I have what I call litmus tests that I've developed over the years to assess all sorts of different situations. Some of them are real-life situations, some of them are work situations, and some of them are, I think, very well-grounded. Some of them are probably a little bit naive. You think to maybe high school chemistry, you think back to what a real litmus test is. It's where you dip a strip down into something and you pull it out and it tells you if it's acid or base. And, and even in real life, we, if you have a swimming pool, you have strips that you dip down in the water and then you measure it against the scale. It tells you if the water is good or not. So that's, that's like a real life, true litmus test type of operation. But then think about all the other shortcuts that you can use in life. Like you've probably heard that if you want to know if a pearl is real or not, you can rub it against your tooth and it feels rough. It's a real pearl. If it doesn't, it's a fake pearl. Consider uh, you take your car in to get it worked on by a mechanic. Okay, you see the mechanic's hands, and you might think, well, his knuckles are all skinned up. That must mean he's a good mechanic. But the reality is that a good mechanic doesn't have skinned knuckles because he's developed practices over the years where he knows when he's going to skin his knuckles, and he does it differently so that he doesn't do that. So that's sort of a, of a, a rule down those lines, real-life type situations. So like, for example, in, in my consulting business, in my area of expertise, there are one or two specific products that I guess I would say they're, they're ubiquitous within our industry. People who are in, this, in the industry know these products. They know what they do. They know there's a good product for this use. There's a caulking product that we use in our industry that's essentially the Swiss Army knife of waterproofing. If you're in the industry, you know that product. If you're not in the industry or if you're playing like you're in the industry, you're trying to make people think you know what you're talking about, all you have to do is pose a specially worded question that asks, essentially ask them, so what do you think about this product? And sit back and you gauge the facial expressions and the body language and the verbal response. And from that, you can tell, it gives you an idea of whether they know what they're talking about. Maybe it's not a true test, but it's a quick indication of whether they're in the game or not. If you'd like to know more about Influence Ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast.
And so do you have lots of these kinds of litmus tests? I can hear that you do have lots. <laughs> do you have some that you think are useful for our audience? Little litmus tests that they might utilize in their own business endeavors or in their own, perhaps in the satisfaction of work, career, money, any, any, anything that comes to mind? It's hard for me to know what specifically is going to be useful to someone else for their specific needs. Like, for example, it all kind of tends to revolve around my aims and what I need to accomplish. For example, I've used the Microsoft Excel spreadsheet program nearly every day for the last 30 years. I use it at a certain level, and the people that I work with need to use it at a certain level. We don't use it for any level of you know, rocket science or anything like that. We use it at a fairly low level. But, for example, here you know, a litmus test that I use for Excel is that you can use a dollar sign in a formula to make it do a certain operation. It doesn't have anything to do with money. It's a dollar sign that's used to execute an operation. And if you know what the dollar sign does in an Excel formula, then you probably know how to use Excel at the level that I need for you to. Hmm. If you don't know what the dollar sign does, then that tells me that you're at a different level of use of Excel and I may have to train you to do some things. That's really fascinating because I've been thinking about a variety of ways that one might test for personality, for example. Just last night, I was leading a workshop and someone said, well, how do I find the right person for the job? And so I had said, certainly, well, you know, you would need to make sure that they understood the skills. But then we have people who've shared with us all kinds of ways that they've approached having the right personality in that role also. We have a group that does uh, invites all of the salespeople that they're that are applying for a job into a room with a two-way mirror and watches to see which ones are talking to one another, and they tend to know. Oh, okay, well, those are the social ones; those are the performers, for example. It's all kinds of little tests like that. It's just fascinating subject. I can imagine then creating all kinds of different tests or standards for things. Made me think of another way I can utilize my judge here. One that comes to mind that I've actually talked with Randy about this before, I can imagine that most people who keep a diary are judges. I would also consider that uh, most people who do scrapbooking as a hobby are likely judges because they're focusing on preserving the past and having the past to go back and look at. Nice. The other thing that I've noticed is pay attention to when people talk about how they schedule things and whether they talk about knowing what they're going to be doing in two years or five years versus not having any plan for the future. And when someone tells me that they they have their schedule set out for two or three years, it, it leads me to believe that they're likely an inventor. All right. Very good. Anything else you want to say about this notion of litmus tests or standards? I've actually observed situations where people have run litmus tests on themselves and they didn't even know it. So let me give you an example. Meaning? <laughs> I'm starting Imagine to get nervous. Imagine you have two mechanics in a mechanic shop and they've finished the car they're working on and they someone pulls in the next car that they need to work on and it's a Ford. And one of the mechanics turns to the other mechanic and says, oh gosh, this says Ford on it. I wonder if these Ford people are still in business. That would be a pretty ludicrous question for one mechanic to ask another. It's a, it should be common knowledge in their area of expertise that Ford does, in fact, exist, right? So 
I was at a meeting a number of years ago where a consultant doing essentially what I do for a different client, all working on the same project, asked a question in front of a group of people. And, and he asked a question that he should have known the answer to, and all the people in the room knew that he should know the answer to, but he didn't. And you've probably heard people say that there's no such thing as a dumb question. <laughs> <laughs> and I decline to accept that. I I, th- I think that if you if there's a specialized piece of knowledge about your expertise that you should know, and you ask the question in front of a bunch of people who do know, and they know that you should know the answer to it, I, I would offer to you that you just asked a dumb question. You essentially just ran a litmus test on yourself for the people in the room, and you didn't even know it. Very well put. Tell me a little bit about what you've learned here. You know, everybody has a journey, a journey through their own transactional competence. And I imagine like for me, I'm not done with the journey, but what you've learned here and perhaps how it's impacted you. Anything you want to say about that? Oh, there are a number of major things that I've learned. I essentially grew up in an upbringing where I became an adult thinking that living independently in terms of not having any help, doing everything myself was sort of like the uh, the pinnacle of life, that if I didn't have to hire anyone to help me to do something on my house or my cars or in my business, that I, I was doing it the best possible way. And I've come to the realization that having help is a good thing. It's a, a transition for me to move out of that way of thinking and come to a, a place where I'm actively seeking help so that I don't have to do everything myself. Good. Anything else? The other aspect of it is that I've come to the realization that I can actually have some control over planning what the future can look like, and I can actively work towards meeting that plan of a future instead of just simply working hard day to day and year to year and hoping that it's going to turn out the way that I think it might turn out, that it can actually be planned. I would say that for many of the people that I know that are judges, that's not easy. When Daryl tries to think about the future, he says, my brain hurts. You know, it's like a, it just makes his brain hurt. It's like, well, how can you think about the future? It hasn't happened. It's all what if, and, and what does that have to do with anything? Do you recognize yourself in that kind of statement? And, and are you saying that you've overcome that to some degree, or you found a way to kind of look at the past and then gauge the future? Or what do you mean by all that? It is a very difficult challenge because uh, I think we tend to go down a lot of rabbit holes of what could happen and how can I plan for all these very, very large number of things that could happen that we don't have any control over instead of focusing on the specific things that we can have more control over, at least some level of control, and, and move forward with it. And as we teach it here, we talk a little bit about the two personalities that get together to plan, which is the inventor and the judge. I, as an inventor, would go to my judge, and together we would look at the resources that we've got. We would look at the current set of facts, all the things that are known, so that we can begin to speculate on the future as a possibility based on all those facts, resources, and so forth. Do you find that you're more able to take what you've got as facts and look towards the future? How are you beginning to plan the future? It's very much a work in progress at this point in terms of 
really just wrapping my mind around that because at this point I don't actually have an inventor involved with my life in any way. I don't have a, an inventor in my relationships and I don't have an inventor in my business. And so I'm working on it. So for you, how do you plan? What do you imagine when you think about improving your business over the course of the next year or two years or something like that? Taking advantage of outside resources that I can draw on to give me advice in moving that way. That's very interesting. So those with the knowledge, those with the resources, those with the connections, that kind of thing? Yes. I'm asking because I'm authentically interested in understanding the judge in all kinds of ways. And I, every time I talk to some of you, I, I learn more. So there's a natural tendency to, it sounds like, to look at the resources that you have at your disposal and people and knowledge, intellectual property, all that kind of stuff. Anything else you want to say about that? I would say that, you know, in general, judges, we're not people people. We don't spend a lot of time around other people. Uh, inventors tend to be agitating to us in a lot of ways. Am I agitating to you? <laughs> no, no. It's, it's, and nothing personal towards you in any way. The, the potential for having to work actively with an inventor is agitating. Yeah. And so it's something that has to be overcome. I, I think a lot of judges experience that. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's great. Well, I think one of the places that we share in common, and this may help in whatever way it does, is we both have an interest in the inventory of resources, all of the tools we might have at our disposal, whatever they may be. Because as I've said, I think I said it on another podcast, inventors aren't so much people creating from nothing as they are getting in front of an existing parade where we will take a look at the resources that we've got at our disposal and then begin utilizing those resources, look to the future. And all right, well, if I've got these things and these tools and these people, and what can I do with that? As I would imagine, somebody approaches an art project where they've got all these things they could utilize and they begin to put a little paint there and that there and so forth. Um, so I'm just commenting on my own experience of that. Anything you want to say about that? No, that makes perfect sense. All right. Is there anything else that you would like to to say about your journey here with us or perhaps any little soapbox moment? We always give people an opportunity to stand on a soapbox and say just about anything. As far as my soapbox, I guess my main point there is that I, I guess I've gotten to the point where I get frustrated with people who who won't take any personal responsibility for what they do. And in particular, taking responsibility for their personal safety. The phone is not always going to get you out of trouble and it won't always take you where you need to go. Even something as simple as right now, if you needed to call 911 and tell them specifically where you are so that someone could come there, could you do it? The person next to you needed first aid in one way or another. Do you have any way of providing that? I'll offer to you, uh, probably a month or so ago, your entire life was surrounded by the Thomas Fire. Yes. And I, I would bet that uh, you probably have a uh, renewed appreciation for the idea of having some food in your house to eat and some water at your house in case you had to be there for a week or so. Maybe having gas in your car to be able to go a certain distance. 
for me, you know, one of the most horrifying things I ever saw was watching the house across from me burn down in the middle of the night and seeing the fire department pumping thousands of gallons of water on a house while the people sat on the curb in their pajamas watching their house burn. And so we have fire extinguishers all over our house. I offer to you that there's there are a lot of preparedness things that you can do that may take a little bit of time now to set yourself up in a way that uh, you can handle some situations that very might very likely may occur. And once you once you reach that level of preparedness, it doesn't take a lot to maintain it, and it can give you a sense of calmness and in a way that you're not worried about things that might happen. Yeah. And watch out for the fake news that's out there. Fake news is everywhere. Yeah, (laughs) it certainly is. That's fantastic. I listen to a lot of that through the lens of what we would say the dominant need for happiness for a judge personality is, which is what? What do we say it is? Security. Security, right? So for me, it's certainty. Inventors, it's certainty. For performers, it's freedom. For judges, it's security. For producers, it's consistency. So it's fascinating because I can hear that the, all of that provides you with some peace of mind. It's really great. Well, as I said, I, uh, I love the both of you dearly. And in fact, I didn't know that Randy and I share a hobby in common. Do you know about this? Uh, would it be aquariums? <laughs> yes, it would. I would imagine you have a basement or something that's filled with aquariums and little, or a garage or something. Is that right? They're actually scattered all over the house. We have about 700 gallons of salt water in our house in various tanks. We started with a small saltwater aquarium, and then it grew to the point where we de- we decided to do, a, I think it's a 180-gallon tank in our bedroom. And then from there, we did a 240-gallon tank in our living room. And then Randy got interested in in raising corals. And so we set up um, an extra bedroom in the house with two different aquariums that are solely for the purpose of propagating coral. That's fantastic. And we share the responsibilities. I tend to be more in charge of keeping all the pumps and mechanical equipment running, and she tends to be uh, more focused on the livestock, the, the fish and the corals, and then we both work on whatever needs to be done to keep the water quality the way it needs to be. Yeah, it is. Well, I find it fascinating. I don't know if you know this or not, but um, I had a saltwater reef aquarium for many years, and it wasn't that big. It was 75 gallons, I think, or something like that. And raising lots of coral and, and the like. And it was around that time, uh, probably 15 or 20 years ago, that I started to talk about the the health of the fish is given by the health of the water. And so we used to address the fitness of the environment, the health of the environment. And I was always very fascinated in the relationship between the organism and, and environment and as you know, influence ecology has a lot to do with the relationship between organism and environment and some of the ways in which we, as human beings, don't often address environment to tend to ourselves. We kind of tend to ourselves like a thing as opposed to a, something that the environment and the organism are inseparable. So many years ago, I started to give a speech that went something like, 
The health of the fish is given by the water. Don't treat the fish, treat the water. And that was actually some of the kernel of what turned into a whole host of talks and papers on that organism environment subject. And it all started with aquariums. So when I found out that Randy, I was just watching something on Facebook the other day and saw she was unpacking some new frags and talking about it. I was like, oh my God, I love it. Grand. Anyway, so I think she knows about my love for all that. And, and uh, I'm sometimes living vicariously through her. I don't know that I want to stomach the work that it takes, but I certainly loved every bit of it. So I don't know if you knew all that, but I thought I'd share it. No, that's great. One thing about it is it reminds me, my dad used to make wine I saw at an early age that there are some things you have to be very patient with. You're going to spend a bunch of time to make this wine and then put it in a cabinet for five years and not touch it. And growing coral is a little bit like that. It it grows at such a small rate that you really have to do it for a while to see any appreciable change in the size, much less just keeping it alive. But then when you do actually start to see the changes, and and we take photos of our corals every once in a while just so we can kind of track at what rate they're growing, it it really is fulfilling to see this thing propagate and and grow larger. and, And you can actually break pieces off. And then it's like a plant where you cut off part of the plant and propagate it. And and so it's not necessarily destructive to the environment because what you're doing is just propagating something that someone else has propagated already. It's fantastic. It's a lot of fun. Probably a couple years before we were in influence ecology and, and before we would do anything like assess whether it meets our aims or do the 13 steps on whether we should put a 240 gallon of aquarium in our living room. <laughs> and so there are probably parts of it now that we would do differently, you know, having the hindsight of maybe we should have thought about what we're getting ourselves into. But in hindsight, I wouldn't say we regret it. It, it makes it challenging to go on vacation we, at this point we have a a person who comes and takes care of our dogs and is able to to take care of the aquariums and keep them going without us having to worry about it too much but it it is definitely a a level of added lifestyle maintenance I guess you would say I remember there used to be beepers you could get on your belt in case your your chiller stopped working (laughs) and you had right you need to go home and add some ice cubes to your (laughs) whatever I mean, there's there's all kinds of stuff. The level of sophistication, the LED lighting setups that they have now are just insane compared to probably what you were used to, to having back then. Yeah, fun topic. Thank you very much for being with us today on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, it was great. I enjoyed it. As I said, in this episode's Guru Talk, we'll hear co-founder Kirkland Tibbles talk about the asset and liability of the judge personality and how each personality can work together in the work that we address as planning, strategy, tactics, and implementation. Here's the talk. When we get around to the judge that's most skeptical and critical and often confrontational personality, we bump up against standards. The asset of standards is that if we follow along the rules, the laws, the regulations, the expectations, the standards, the ethics, the codes of conduct, that we all agree we would when we engaged in this transaction in the first place, we end up better off for it. 
the general public, those with whom we engage on a regular basis, our business partners, our superiors, our subordinates, our employees, our vendors, everyone, sees a consistent representation of who we are as an enterprise operating by a standard. Those standards include quality, they include consistency, commitment, they include a number of things, those standards. We pay bills at a certain time, we make our payroll at certain times, ethics and standards, and that is the asset of having a highly critical, confrontational skeptic who is always concerned about whether or not the enterprise and the individuals in it are holding to that standard. That, to me, is probably the easiest one to see, maybe ego, but this one tends to be a pretty easy one to see how it can also get in the way. When it's time for innovation, when it's time for some creativity, when the standards become bureaucratic, when they become too narrow, and they begin to choke the possibilities that exist in uh, reinvention, then it becomes a problem. And judges will hold on until their last breath to every single standard that gets put in place unless you are working with them continually, ongoingly, to recognize which standards are appropriate, which ones work, which ones are becoming outdated along the way. The mistake to make with a judge is not to have that dialogue on a regular basis, ideally allowing the judge to bring up the standards that ought to be put in place when they ought to be changed, rather than taking the same route of you making that determination, Mr. CEO, Mr. President, and then you letting them know that. That's a terrible mistake, just like the inclusion biology of a producer. That's how judges respond to being told what to do when it comes to standards. When you make a rule and you give it to the judge, they're going to hold tight to that rule. If you're going to make an amendment, include the judge in that work. Great. And any conclusive statements about the asset and liability of any personality? If you look at the work we do in our most advanced programs, we begin to see how these personalities work in quadrants. And you can see the benefit of standards and vision coming together when you start to do your planning. You can see the ego needed to think about the future right next to the person who's there to hold the standards of the enterprise at the same time. When those two personalities work together, you've got the proper unit to do the planning for, on behalf of the enterprise. You can see vision and you can see ego right next to skeptic and standards. And that pairing is very important in terms of planning. You can see the same thing working with the ego of the inventor and the relationships needed to build the mission with the performer. As you're looking to invent the strategic intent and commitments of how you're going to deploy resources, you can see how those two are the perfect two to be in the room to talk and to design the strategic intent of the enterprise or the transaction. And ideally, when you get into tactics, the relationships of Tactics are mostly how you're going to have other people take action, right? When you're talking about people, the two people personalities in the transaction, the performer and the producer, the ones who go out and build the alliances along with the person who is going to be engaged in making offers, relationship and building alliances and being included in all of what has to be done, tactics. Maybe that's a good trigger 
line, John, is anytime you're working on tactics, that producer better be in the room. When you're working on anything that has another human being engaged in work and action, you put the producer in the room, and ideally it's the performer and the producer working on the specific tactics, the commitments that must be made by other people and themselves to get the work done. You can see how they come together in that quadrant, and there's nobody better to capture the metrics required that get done in work, that get produced on the factory floor, and the person who will be declaring and passing judgment on and drawing certain conclusions about the work in action in metrics than your judge and your producer together. You can even go so far, and we do in our advanced programs, to look at the entire hemisphere of the transaction cycle in the same way. There's plenty of inquiry to be done here. Fundamentally, the asset and the liability is a place to look when you start to notice that people are biologically triggered. This is the line in the chart to observe. When people get biologically triggered, it's probably in this area of asset and liability, and that would be the red flag to begin with when you notice that biology hitting the room. My special thanks to our guest, Carl Strand. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with him and the links to websites, books, or downloads mentioned in this podcast. Some episodes include a transcript and support material. The Influence Ecology podcast is produced by Influence Ecology, LLC, in Ventura, California. This episode was produced and edited by Jason Kelly. We are supported by the ambitious work of the Influence Ecology faculty, members, and students around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Colonel Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study in the philosophy of transactionalism and the fundamentals of transactional competence. Contributors to this episode include Tyson Crandall, Carrie Cohn, Carol Gregory, and myself. The sound design and editing are by Jason Kelly. The podcast theme is by Chris Standring, entitled Fast Train to Everywhere. You can subscribe to the Influence Ecology podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at influenceecology.com. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment, go to iTunes or your podcast app, and let us know what you think. This helps us more than you know.